We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Rahit Pargava, an Indian-American brand expert, trend expert, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and professor. This is part two of our conversation, and if you haven't listened to part one yet, you can find it wherever you're listening right now and listen to Rahit talk about his childhood and Indian intrinsic competitiveness. Rahit's background is in advertising. He has been working with such global brands as NASA, Disney, Coca-Cola, American Express, and many, many others. He is also the founder of Non-Obvious Company that is on a mission to help the world to be more open-minded by teaching people how to be non-obvious thinkers. In this second part of the conversation, we talk about the sense of belonging, and I've really enjoyed Rahit's take on it. We also talk about the value of American accent and some future trends that are both fascinating and terrifying. Here's our chat. advertising, marketing, and branding your entire career. What was it growing up that drove you to that? I think that at a relatively early age, so not like when I was a child, but when I was in high school, I discovered that I really liked writing and specifically storytelling. And so my interest in marketing came from my interest in writing. And in high school, I was really interested in screenwriting and playwriting. And when I went to college, I became an English major. And my, uh, my dad said, you can do that because you obviously like it, but you have to get a different degree that will help you get a job. <laughs> so I got a second degree at the same time. I did a double major and my other major was marketing because I figured that's kind of about storytelling. It's like persu- good marketers are persuasive storytellers. And hopefully they're not storytelling or persuading about something evil. So that was the connection that kind of led me into marketing and advertising. And I got my first big break in advertising when I moved to Australia because I'd moved there without a job. Oh, wow. So you just moved. I just moved. Yeah. I just went and I lived in a hostel and um, there had a three-week limit on how long you were able allowed to stay in the hostel. So I had a very literal countdown timer that I needed a job in three weeks wow. uh, in order to have a place to stay. And, um, and so I had all these tricks because I'd saved up some money from waiting tables uh, after graduating. And I was using that money to be in Australia and to pay for my own kind of expenses. So I had my system. I'd buy the loaf of bread for the week and the peanut butter for the week for lunch. I'd go to the Chinese restaurant for $7 and have the kind of buffet in the evenings. And so my daily expenses were really low. And this was like way back in the time, younger people would not remember this moment, but this was at the time where when you had a cell phone, you didn't pay to receive a call. You only paid if some, if you made a call. So if someone called you and you picked up the phone and talked to them, that would be free. But if I called them, that I would have 
to pay for. So because I didn't have any money, I would call all these recruiters and companies at lunchtime when I knew they wouldn't be there. And I'd leave a message and I'd hope they called me back. So I wouldn't have to pay for the phone calls. <laughs> so that was like my, my phone call system. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. You got to hack the system a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very resourceful. Impressive. <laughs> and so how did you feel out there? Do you see yourself as Indian going to Australia? Was there any thought behind that? Like, so that was that was a really interesting identity moment for me. I think because when at the point when I moved to Australia, uh, if you look at me, you're like, oh, he's Indian. If you listen to me, you say, oh, he's American. And in Australia, there was no reason for me to sound and look the way that I did. So I was just this enigma, right? Because when they looked at me, they thought, well, he obviously speaks with an Indian accent. And then I started speaking with this American accent. And they're like, what's going on? Where are you? What's, where are you from? And, you know, it was my 20s. So I had my green contacts, which was even more confusing for people. Because then they were like, wait, you've got this weird, like, eye thing going on too. So it, it, was, it was confusing for people. But very quickly, what I realized was in that particular culture, speaking the way that I spoke and having that American accent made me an asset when it came to sales. All over the world. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I only knew Australia. Uh, but in Australia, when they listened to somebody with an American accent talk about a solution, uh, it was a good sales pitch. And I benefited, I think, from the stereotypes also, because one of the things I've talked about before is looking Indian. Most of the Indians that were in Australia at that time were highly technical. I mean, they were engineers, they were programmers. And so because I looked Indian, they assumed I was technical, even though I was an English major and <laughs> I was clearly not. So they look at this guy and they say, well, he's obviously technical because he looks Indian and he speaks pretty well because he's got an American accent. And that ended up being kind of great assets for me uh, in that culture. So I used what I had. Right. Yeah. And so what brought you back here? Uh, I stayed there for about five years. And at the point when I came back, I was just kind of feeling like it was too far from my family. I wanted to kind of be back closer. It was just a feeling. I just felt like this was time to leave. And, uh, and it actually worked out because pretty much a year later, I met my wife, we got married um, and, uh, and everything else started and she's Canadian. So I guess it was the, I mean, it was the end of my twenties. So it was sort of like the right time before I turned 30. And so, you know, once we got married, we had kids and everything like that. So like, I love the moment that in my life that I was there and I love that I left when I left. Hmm. So that was organic. For yeah, you. it was. I mean, not to say I didn't get fired once or twice, but you know, it wasn't because of getting fired. That I, left. I actually left a good job by telling them that I was going to leave. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Because I don't know, for, for, for many immigrants who I talk to and for many people who come here and try to figure out a way of staying, after a few years, it's really hard to go back. Um, after two, yeah. three years, you've invested so much into trying to build a community here, into trying to learn the culture here. And after that, going back, you're not even going, you, you're not really going back because the country that you left has changed so much. And so it's, it's like moving again to a new country. Did you have that feeling? Yeah, I mean, I have, um, I've definitely heard that experience um, from people. I think what ended up happening for me, right or wrong, when I was in Australia is 
I didn't seek out the Indians and I didn't seek out the Americans. I made myself more Australian. And as a result of that, I had a full on Australian accent. I got my Australian citizenship and I kind of became part of the Australian culture. Like even though I hadn't grown up there, like I sort of became a chameleon and I became Australian. And I think that to some degree that was because of how I had traveled in my life up until that point. Cause I always thought, and I would always do this anytime I went somewhere, I would look at their customs. I would look at how they greet one another. And in Brazil, if they kiss on two cheeks, that's what I would do. If they kiss on three cheeks in different cities, like that's what I would do. Uh, and, and I would change the way that I say, like if I saw that they were saying certain words a certain way. So in Australia, one of the first things I changed, the currency they use there is the dollar. And in America, it's the dollar. In Australia, it's the dollar. So the, one of the first words I changed how I said was, I didn't say dollar anymore because immediately people would be like, oh, that's an American. I changed and I started saying dollar. And so those sorts of things, like you just pick up on, and it's not like speaking the language per se, but it's having empathy for how they communicate or how they interact with one another. And so that's what I would start to do. And it's interesting that you're intentional about that. It starts off intentional, but I think to some degree, it's also, I mean, anybody who has high empathy uses this technique of mimicking, right? So if you're talking to somebody and they nod at a certain level of frequency, like you start to do the same thing. If they stand a certain distance away from you, like you, you're not a close stander, like you stand where they are comfortable with you standing. So like in some Latin cultures, people are comfortable standing closer to one another. Like, so I stand closer. And in other cultures, they're, <clears throat> that's too much. That's in their personal space. So then I move back. So I think that I kind of, that type of, I don't know what you would call it, like a traveler's empathy or something like that. Like, I think that I've built that Nomad. Yeah, maybe. I mean, although I, I wouldn't really live in most of these places, I, it's still like having a home, you know, but um, having that sort of empathy, I think is something you, that maybe you just build over yeah, time. Yeah, that's, that's really impressive and uh, very helpful in the, in the global world. <laughs> and so I want to talk a little bit about the non, <laughs> non-obvious yeah. thinking, because I feel that in a way, immigrant or alien thinking is a way of non-obvious thinking because it's a different perspective. I think you're right. I think that I'm, I mean, I've been building over the last 10, 10 years, this brand of non-obvious. And that's part of the way I describe it. I say non-obvious thinking is seeing what other people miss. And to some degree, having an immigrant perspective or having an alien perspective allows you to do that more in, easily because you have seen different people react to different things. You've seen them, everything from the big to the small. I mean, in Asian cultures, when you're indicating for someone to come over, like you, your palm is not face up telling them to come to you. It's, you know, face down, like you come this way. Um, so like even oh, wow. the small things, right? Like when you say, come over here, like somebody who's in certain Asian cultures, they'll have their palm facing downwards and they'll indicate for you to come versus the palm facing upwards. So um you do pick up on those things. And I think it makes you more observant of these things, these differences, but, but it also makes you more observant of what makes us similar. So it's not just we're also different because we come from different places. It's, you know, there are certain things that, that are in common among people. And I think those are easy to forget debates and political people talking about immigrants and they're taking this and they're taking that from us like it's it's all focused on they're not like us whereas i think more times than than not 
they're motivated. They, right. Whoever the, they are, are motivated by the mm-hmm. same things we are. I mean, they want a better life for their kids. They want to be able to be of value. They are not trying to screw somebody out of something, right. I mean, most people don't wake up in the morning every day saying, who can I screw out of an opportunity um, just to make myself more awesome. Uh, it's not a normal human way of thinking. So I can, actually, in my experience, from what I hear from all of my conversation and myself personally, people come here with the desire to do something, to create something, to contribute something, yeah, to make something of themselves and by that contribute to the country. And certainly there are areas and fields and whole industries where immigrants have made huge contributions like healthcare and high tech. I mean, in Silicon Valley, almost 60% of the workforce are immigrants. Every industry, really. There is that sort of drive that comes from someone who's not just uh, born somewhere and, and saying, this is my place, but someone who comes somewhere and says, I have to earn my place here where I am. And I have to make this my place as opposed to just saying, well, I was born here, so this place belongs to me. Where are you on that spectrum? I have struggled with that for, for a long time. Maybe I still struggle with it, right? Because, I mean, I'm in a situation where I literally could have four different passports right now. I mean, I'm married to a Canadian. I'm an Australian citizen. I was born in India and I am a U.S. citizen, right? So. I'm literally in between all of these things. I mean, I I did grow up in the DC area. So, I mean, that's always going to be home from a place point of view. But when it comes to culture, I mean, I'm, I'm divided in a lot of ways because in a very formative time in my life, I spent five years in Australia. Um, my culture from a family point of view has always been Indian. My wife is Indian. Uh, so, you know, with both of us, we come from an Indian culture. And obviously I grew up in America. And so the cultural references and things that I know are American. Do you ever struggle with that sense of belonging or not belonging? I think that when I hear or see people who struggle with belonging, I think it's not so much based on the place that they are. It's based on the people that they're surrounded by. Like when they feel a lack of belonging, it's because they don't belong in the relationship they're in, or they don't belong in the friend circle that they're in, or they don't belong in the company that they're part of. That's where I think a a sense of missing belonging comes from. Uh, I think that I don't have that. I I feel like I belong. Um, Now, there's lots of places where I could do that if I were surrounded by that. But I think a lot of times people mistake the place and belonging with the place with the fact that when you go to a new place, you don't have the friends, you don't have the family, you don't have the support system. And so you feel like, well, I don't belong here, but it's not because you don't belong in that place necessarily. It's because it takes time. And I remember talking to people who'd moved to a foreign country uh, at some point in their life. And they all will tell you the same thing, which is for your first two or three years, you just don't feel like you belong. And then there's kind of a switch that happens. And for different people, it happens at different times. For some people, it'll happen 10 years down the road. Some people, it happens at, you know, two years down the road. Generally, it doesn't happen for at least two years. Um, And I like to tell people that because I don't want them to be like, well, I'm going to be different. Like in a year, it'll be all good for me. Like, no. Uh, But once it does happen, you're like, okay, I I belong here. And then there's moments that you'll remember where you feel that. Like I remember moments in Australia. Like I remember 
Australians love to abbreviate things. So like instead of afternoon, they'll say Arvo. Instead of sunglasses, they'll say sunnies. Like, you know, they love to abbreviate different, like that's part of Australian lingo. And uh, one of the things they love to abbreviate is people's names. And so when I got an abbreviated name, like, okay, now I'm Australian. They baptized you into being Australian. Sort of, yeah. I'm not one of those people who's like, there's only one way to say my name and everybody needs to say it the correct way. Otherwise you're racist. Like that's not my perspective. Um, I appreciate when people do make an effort and try and say my name correctly, but I also appreciate when certain people say it a certain way. Like there's one of my friends, he's the only one in my entire kind of circle who just calls me Ro. And like nobody else does that. That's not a nickname that I've ever had, but like that's what he <laughs> uses and I like it. And I was just talking to somebody about that yesterday. I'm like, and I only like it because it's his name, right? And I don't even talk to him that often, but that's just kind of one of those unique things. Like we, we want people to respect our name and respect where we come from, but we also want that personal bond. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it adds a, a level of intimacy. I also have some different groups of friends calling me different yeah. <laughs> names and or different nicknames and definitely because they come from the history right of yeah. of that relationship yeah exactly and that carries in that name that's so nice yeah. it's interesting that you brought that up i love it i would like to quickly talk about the book that is coming out so yeah so there's two guidebooks um, that are coming out in May. Um, there's the guide to marketing and branding, and then there's the guide to working remotely. And then in October, there's a book coming out around diversity, beyond diversity. And then next February, there's a book coming out called The Future Normal, uh, which is all about like trends wow. for the future. So that's the yeah, track of all the different projects. <laughs> so I'm not sure which one's most interesting for your audience in particular. Well, I think the, I think because I, I do have a diverse audience actually from all over the world, um, I do think the, the future thing is the most interesting okay. for everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe we talk about um, non-obvious megatrends um, continues to do well. That was a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller. So we can talk about that. And then my next one is going to be co-authored with a amazing futurist from London, um, named Henry Coutinho Mason, and that's called The Future Normal, and that's coming out early next year. I read your some of your predictions, some of your trends, yeah. not predictions, <laughs> uh, some of your trends from a year ago, and I was, I was really impressed with you calling the crypto boom in March of last year, <laughs> because it was not as obvious, and look at what's happening. It's amazing how many things we see today that are not so much, I mean, when people talk about predictions and trends, a lot of times what they imagine in their minds is someone picking something out of nothing and saying, here's the guess for what's going to be happening. And when they end up being right, they're like, well, that was just a lucky guess. And usually what I do when I'm writing about trends or identifying trends or making predictions for the future is not picking out of nothing or something that I hope might happen. Instead, I'm finding isolated examples of something that's happening on a small scale, and I'm predicting that it's going to accelerate really fast. So that's the secret. Like, And my definition of a trend is actually that. It's an observation of the accelerating present. That's what a trend is. And so the more I can focus on spotlighting those things, because I'm reading all of these things, and, and before the pandemic, I was traveling all around the world talking to people, and now I, I still do that, but virtually... 
I can see where these things are leading because that's where the insight comes from. But it's not based on just guessing or nothing. It's based on what's happening now that most people aren't paying attention to, that they're not noticing. And that's what non-obvious has been for the last 10 years. So non-obvious megatrends, um, the book that you mentioned, like that was all about what are 10 big shifts for the future. And the new book that I'm working on, which will be out in 2022, is called The Future Normal. And that's sort of a play off of the new normal and the thing that that phrase that everybody uses now. And that book is dedicated to 50 ideas and instigators who are changing the future. And so we're identifying projects and individuals and programs and just talking about, well, what are these things that are happening now that we all should be paying attention to that are going to change our future over the next 10 years? What is the change that you're most excited and enthusiastic about? And what is one change that you're most terrified of? They may be related to one another, um, but I think that one of the changes that I'm most excited about is how technology and specifically like robotic technology is being used in caregiving situations. So not only like hospital situations to like help to better care for people, but home care, because there's more and more people who are aging faster and they want to be able to stay at home. And now if we can give them more automated ways of getting the help that they need without requiring 24 seven care from someone you know, that's huge. And that's on every level, both from like, I mean, there's certain robots that can like literally pick you up out of bed and then, you know, change the sheets and then put you back in bed. Like there's stuff like that, which is very specific all the way through yeah. to like digital avatars that are voiced by real people so that you can actually communicate with someone who's a real person and combat loneliness and things like that. Uh, so that technology to be able to serve in all of those capacities is really exciting. Um, I think that the scary thing um, that I'm most afraid of is what's happening with uh, media that is undetectably fake and the ability for evil people to create news stories, create video clips, create stories that are that seem true and that seem real. And that combined with many people, too many people's behavior of quickly looking at something and deciding that it seems real enough and then sharing it, thereby amplifying it. That is a huge, huge danger to the world. And ironically, the danger is not from deep fake technology getting better, right? Because deep fake technology could get as, as, as good as it is. The problem is that we share it. So we are the problem, not the technology. Well, I mean, the technology may be part of the problem, but the bigger problem is we don't take the time to figure out if it's real and we don't think about what we share before we share. We just amplify it uh, because it already reinforces what we think. And yeah. that's what I'm afraid of. It's the people and our human behavior and this desire to just share something so we get a bunch of likes instead of actually thinking, you know, should I share this? Is this bullshit? <laughs> should I maybe check into this a little bit more instead of just amplifying it and sending it out there to outrage more people? Yeah, I'm always fascinated. And I love that you brought up the whole robotics and AI stuff. I'm always fascinated with this relationship between humans and technology. And I always feel that human evolution takes so much time. And human social evolution and psychological evolution takes so much time. I mean, we're essentially the same beings that 
were in caves, yet we're not in caves anymore. And the abilities that the technology gives us socially, psychologically, we're just not quite there and we're, we can't evolve as fast to keep up with it. The examples that you were giving, yes, there will be this technology providing opportunity to get away from this loneliness, but will the people be willing to accept it? And then how will we develop the ethics of all those relationships in the metaverse, you know, yeah. wearing VR glasses and, and how we'll be adapting to that? I don't think it's going to be an easy process no it's uh it's definitely not not easy uh there are i mean one of the fascinating things about writing this future normal book is that we get to dig into the people who are coming up with potential solutions for some of these things so a lot of the process of writing this book and doing the interviews was asking these what if questions so what if a video that was about to be posted online could be instantly validated as real or fake before it got posted, who would create that, right? What would that take in order to build yeah. that? And so like, these are the sorts of things because there are people working on that, like credibility um, software to actually authenticate whether something's real or, or isn't, which is part of the solution. So uh, almost like a blue check mark on an article to say, okay, this is true, or this is not posted by some Photoshopped thing. This is actually a real photo. So like, those sorts of things are really interesting to start to dig into. But again, like I said before, like we can't just rely on the technology to be the solution. Like we have to change our behavior also. Yeah, it's, it definitely is going to be, it's definitely going to be a combination. It's funny. I, um, I did meet you originally. I, not, I didn't meet you in person on Clubhouse, but I heard you on Clubhouse. Yeah. Uh, and um, Clubhouse is a fascinating place because it is this new social media, uh, which is in a whole different medium of social media, but it's also coming up at a time where we have all those experiences of previous generation, of the first generation of social media with the fakes, with the clickbait, with, with all those, um, with the bots, with all those things, we were aware of all those things. And it's interesting how they're trying to navigate how to how to build how to build it. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting thing. What's your feeling about Clubhouse? I think that they they are going to have to find a way to sort of get rid of some of that. Um, I've had varied experiences on Clubhouse, so some of them have been really good and really interesting. Uh, I think that Clubhouse is partially limited right now by the fact that there's only a certain type of person on there um, and there's only a certain type of phone user. I mean, there's only iPhone users. Um, and so that's going to end soon. You know, I think that um, not all iPhone users are know-it-alls, but all know-it-alls have an iPhone. And so <laughs> that's a problem because <laughs> there are a lot of people trying to sound a lot smarter than they actually are. Oh my God, I love it. Uh, because they feel like they're expected to. So they're not bad people. They're just trying too hard. Well, because there's the stage. You're on stage and you're supposed to sound smart. You're on stage and you're supposed to, yeah, you're supposed to. And so there's a lot of pressure around that. So I tend to drop into rooms that are about something that I have nothing to contribute to because I just want to listen. 
and where I don't know anybody because then they won't call me on stage to have an opinion. So like, I don't join like the stuff I know a lot about like marketing or trends or book publishing. Like I tend to not join any of those rooms. I'll join the room about, uh, you know, single black mothers who are struggling with figuring out what to do and they're looking for it. And I'll just listen to that. Like, so if I do that, um, that's what I tend to, to drop in on. So I'm using it a little bit more as a listening platform as opposed to a performance platform, at least for me. And also I do it very selectively because I don't have an iPhone. So I dug up an old iPhone four that was lying around the house <laughs> that basically has angry birds on it and clubhouse. And, uh, and that's what I use to get onto clubhouse. <laughs> Love it. I do know I need to let you go. Is there anything that you would like to mention that we didn't get to touch on? No, just that, that uh, if this was, was useful for anyone or if they'd like to connect with me directly, uh, you can always go to my website, which is just my full name, rohitbhargava.com, or you can visit nonobvious.com. And there's just lots of stuff there. There's videos, there's books, there's excerpts, there's you know lots of free stuff there. Uh, so if any of this has sparked is. your interest, uh, there's lots of content available for you. And I can definitely confirm that if you want to get in touch with Rohit, you can, because that's what I did. <laughs> I heard you in Clubhouse and I reached out and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. I love the topic uh, of this and it gives me a chance to talk about some things that I don't usually get to talk about on a podcast. So that's fun for me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Find Rohit on Instagram and Twitter. Check out his website. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Get yourself a colorful, outlandish love We The Aliens t-shirt or a mask. Still need those. All the links are in the show notes and on our website. And last but not least, don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who struggles with their sense of belonging or someone who's in a tough place and could use a good story. Or someone who's like me, just fascinated with glimpses of the future that we can see today. Click share, text them a link, and remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace.